Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast in hours two. I am your co-host, TJ West. And I'm Bridget Keyes. Hello. And we're so happy to be with you again for this week's episode, Footnote to Murder. So, Bridget, would you like to give us the summary of what happens in this episode? Yeah, okay, I think I'm going to give three summaries and then you tell me which one you like best. Summary number one. Quote, by and large, writers starve. The power and money is in publishing. Well, that's true. Summary number two. Gayer than the gay episode. Summary number three. The moral of the story, kids, is don't send your only copy of anything to anyone. I mean, I think that all three of those are great summaries, and they're also very good life lessons. So once again, (laughs) Marty, she wrote, is useful for reminding us about the things we should be keeping in mind as we go through life. It is, if you will, a little grace note that I really appreciate. I'm going to just edit that out, I swear. Okay, so um, for those of you who are just joining us, uh, TJ says grace note every episode, and then every episode I get annoyed at him for saying it. So I I was being sort of tongue-in-cheek with my summaries, but the idea is that Jessica's at um, the Gotham Book Awards. She's going to get an award. Her friend Horace, the poet, is also getting an award. And um, there's a murder, and and there's a missing novel, and it turns out the guy who was murdered stole the novel from someone, and we have to figure out who it did. And so our cast of characters this week is full of literary types, agents, publishers, and then really flamboyant authors. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, let's start with, since you brought up the flamboyant authors, let's start with the most obviously flamboyant author, which of course is uh, Robert Reed, who is playing the sort of... Mike Brady, you know him as, from the Brady Brady. Bunch. Yes, playing what is arguably one of the queerest writer characters I have ever seen in a television episode. In fact, I was quite taken aback when I was watching it, thinking, oh my god, he is like practically arching right off of the screen. Like, he just has this... (laughs) delightfully like caustic approach to being a literary persona he is queerly effete or effetely queer i'm not sure which uh he writes things about ancient greece right so again tapping into that homo sort of always code for gay always anytime that a writer is writing about the ancient greeks it is code for queer (laughs) that is just it is the way it is because the you know the greeks had gay sex a lot so Anytime you hear in, in a pop culture text that someone writes about the ancient Greeks, you could pretty much assume that character is queer. And then he also, um, he's like a total snob. Like he, he doesn't recognize Jessica. And then he says something about how she writes like boringly simple mysteries compared to his literature. Um, but he also, there's also like all these other moments where we're sort of referencing his queerness. Like he's like, oh, I swear to God, that twink that I had dinner with last night was a reporter, you know, and like. Like, all of these things that are sort of, the, the episode is insinuating. Like, this guy's right. totally gay. I mean, as I said to Bridget in the pregame, he is very evocative of another kind of, like, archly effect 
character Waldo Lydecker from the famous film noir um, Laura, and I think that's his most immediate intertext. I can't, I could not think that he wasn't at least to some degree referencing back to that specific character, just because of the nature of how he is performing and the way he clearly inhabits the world. And let's be real, I mean, we all want to be that character. At least I do. That's sort of like, if, if I had been watching this as a kid, that's the character that I would have fancied myself being. Why? Right? He's awful. He's like mean to everyone. He's a snob. You have met me before, right? Okay. All right. I'm not actually very mean, but I, I fancy myself something of a, you know, a queer wit. So maybe we should go through all the rest of the characters. So his character's name is Winslow, and he has a longstanding literary feud with our murder victim, Hemsley Post, who um, is bigger physically, uh, kind of dumber and brawnier. Uh-huh. And also just sort of like the paragon of literary masculinity. Like, I think that's the sort of persona. Yeah, like a bro writer. Sure. he's He has, as you know, we, as you mentioned in the pregame too, like something about Norman Mailer, but also Hemingway, like that kind of tra- like literary tradition within American letters. You know, the one who's able to write about the war experience and all that sort of thing. That muscular prose and all that kind of stuff that I hate reading because I think it's terrible. Yeah. And and so the book that he, you know, his new novel that the world is patiently waiting for is supposed to be about his experiences in Vietnam. Uh, And I think Winslow at one point is like, wasn't he only there for like a couple of months? And ultimately it turns out that the story was someone else's and they'd sent it to him to have him, I think, represent him or help him find an agent. Uh, And he stole the story for himself and got a six-figure advance for it. So he's an asshole. Right. And then, of course, what it turns out is that the author's sister is the end up one who ends up being the murderer. Because she goes to try to, like, you know, reprimand him for that. And then he, well, that's that's the big reveal in this episode. She went to confront him over the stolen story. And he tries to sexually assault her. uh, At which point, in self-defense, she ends up killing him, stabbing him. With a sword. A sword, a sword brella. Right. It's, a, it's a, a sword that comes out of an umbrella shaft. And um, I know you have credit to the blog Murder He Watched for calling it a swordbrella, because I think that's, like, the best name. It is. Like, when in all of murder mystery history have we had a swordbrella as the murder weapon? Fun story, real quick. As a, as a teenager, maybe a young adult, I can't remember when, I actually bought a sword cane. Like, it, was, it wasn't a like, terribly sharp sword, but it was this, you know, a, a walking stick that had a sword oh, yeah. in, inside of it. And this is what I'm talking about when I say I want to be like Winslow. Like, because I, that is the kind of person that I used to fancy myself as. It's horrifying. So, um, I, we'll get to who you actually are in a second, but before we get to our two main characters, um, I just want to quickly talk about Tiffany. Good old Tiff Tiff, who is the woman who said writer starve and the powers in publishing, who's trying to um, represent a book and she's trying to be a career gal. But then later we learn that um, actually she spends a lot of nights alone taking sleeping pills to go to sleep because being a career woman in the 1980s and trying to claw your way to the top is a really lonely life. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's another one of those moments in Murder, She Wrote, which at the risk of politicizing our podcast, as some have accused us. You know, it's one of those moments where this show really kind of reveals how much it is very much a part of the 80s. And how, not just in terms of like when it's made, but the kind of issues that it addresses and the kinds of perspectives that it provides helps us to understand like what's going on in this time period that would not necessarily... I forget where I was going with that, so edit that part out. <laughs> so yeah, I just I, that's one of the things I, I, I appreciate about this show is just how frequently it gives voice to those kinds of points of view. 
Yeah, and there's a great moment when they're all at this party, you know, and so Winslow is pretending he, like, doesn't know who Jessica Fletcher is, which is crazy because, you know, she's sold, like, a hundred times more books than him. And um, Tiff Tiff is like, power is in, the money is in publishing. And I'm like, Jessica Fletcher is richer than everyone else at this party. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. And then also she's like, oh, your mystery and your poetry. Mm." And like, I see someone and like walks away. Like, you guys aren't good enough for me to talk to. Like, this is Jessica Fletcher. She is a, she's, she's obviously more famous and has published more books and sold more books and is richer than everyone else at this party. Sure. And that's, I mean, but that's Please part of the- keep making fun of her trashy mystery novels. Sure. And I, that's one of the things I loved about this episode. I think that it would be easy for someone to dismiss this as a sort of caricature of literati. But the truth is, is this is how people who write literary fiction act. I know this because- I yeah. was part of a university where there was a very famous MFA, and I can literally imagine these conversations and these contempt, contemptuous ways of like looking at popular fiction in particular. It is a real thing, and it has not changed that much in the almost 40 years since this show was on the air. <laughs> it is a real thing, yeah, and I can vouch for that because my PhD was housed in a program that also had creative writing, and, uh, and I've written and sold romance novels, and there still remains that that mm-hmm. sense that like this isn't real literature but the people who write real literature are just as jerks and they're not selling books right and i you know i write fantasy also a critically derided genre with some ex- notable exceptions <laughs> but and the other the other um i think glimpse into how literature works is of course horace mm-hmm. so getting to our two main characters horace lynchfield is we meet him first at the beginning and he's looking out the window in a cafe and it's a dark and stormy night and he's writing bad poetry and he's a poet uh, and Jessica comes to meet him so they can go to the party together. And he's he we learn that he's like completely and totally broke. And in fact, later in the episode, she's like giving him cash to pay for stuff. So I love that because it's like referencing how like actually there's no money in poetry. That is definitely true. And, you know, there's no money in writing per se unless you're very fortunate. <laughs> but I love his relationship with Jessica. Um, he yes. felt to me like such a dandy fawning all over Jessica, his diva, you know. Mm-hmm. I love their interactions. And it's another, he's um, he's a chain smoker, and she's like, ugh, you need to quit smoking. He's um, He gets so drunk that he can't provide an alibi for the murder because he doesn't really know where he was. So he's like, you know, he's got his demons, and somehow he's friends with Jessica. And I think we've seen this over a couple of episodes now of, like, how do these people even know each other? How on earth is she friends with this person? But that's who she is. She collects people of all walks of life. In some ways, it sounds a lot like you, actually. which is a compliment well so this is where i was gently um trying to arrive at when you said that you identified with winslow is that perhaps my love you're more of a horace i think that's probably true i mean i'm a horace who aspires to be a winslow that's the thing (laughs) that's the that's the real rub right there (laughs) well especially to me anyway yes you and I, that, I think that of all of the character arrangements that we have speculated that we slot into, whether it's Jessica and Seth, Jessica and Amos, Jessica and uh, Ethan, I think that truly what we are is Jessica and Horace. Like that is the, the that is the <laughs> pairing that we have. That is It's true. Probably the last time we were together, I slipped you a 20 and was like, here, honey. Almost certainly. <laughs> oh, there's also a lady author, Teach. We forgot that. Mm-hmm. Lucinda, the lady author, who everyone is making fun of because she wrote a book about a scandalous woman. Right. Which, again, is just, I mean. It's such an easy pot shot. Yeah. I like that the episode 
punctures their these literati's self-regard like they are just as ridiculous they're far more ridiculous than they would ever acknowledge that they are and i like that that's the uh, that's the tenor that the episode strikes and Mm -hmm. it's because in part we are obviously identifying with jessica who we already love and appreciate and also horace who is much more down to earth and authentic than the glittering carapace of all these terrible people yeah absolutely and i just want to add before we move on from this that um you know the I think you kind of touched upon it, but the idea that Hemsley Post's feud with Winslow is sort of reminiscent of Norman Mailer and Gore Vidal, which is something that I think, you know, um, we think of the TV viewer, that industry executives assume TV viewers are, like, not very educated. But that would be something that you, like, that's it. If you, expecting us to get that reference, I think, assumes a kind of intelligence on the part of the viewer, which is kind of nice. Right. And it's also a, a, a different moment of, like, American intellectual life, like, the age when the every like most people would have been familiar with literature literary figures having a feud because they would get on you know they would be on big talk shows is one is a sort of relic that i think is gone i mean maybe it lives on in twitter i don't know perhaps that's probably where its nearest contemporary equivalent would be but it is one of those moments and like where i think we get a glimpse of an american cultural life that doesn't or cultural like phenomenon that doesn't necessarily exist anymore mm-hmm Yeah. So this episode is so fun because we have all of these, I think, really well-drawn characters populating it and being potential suspects. And then we also just have these glorious little farcical moments between Jessica and Horace, like spinning around a revolving door and like not connecting with each other. And um, Horace has a, a, a cigarette lighter that looks like a gun. And every time he pulls it out, people are screaming, you know, and She's like, oh, my God, just quit smoking or get a different lighter. You know, I think it's so fun. We also have, like, wipes as scene transitions, mm-hmm. which we've never had in Murder, She Wrote. So it's just, there's just so much fun in this that it feels campy to me, which is why I said at the beginning that it feels gayer than the gay episode. And I was referencing Birds of a Feather, the episode that takes place in the drag nightclub in San Francisco. Right. No, this is definitely a queerer episode in terms of its aesthetic its sensibility the joy that it takes in you know as you say in camp because camp is all about like puncturing self-regard and pompousness and so i think that that's definitely something that you're picking up on in this in that sense and yet the murder itself is actually uh really sad and gruesome yes it's one of the more like haunting ones i mean that's what surprised me given that how lighthearted the episode is that the murder itself stems from a genuinely horrifying event yeah so let's talk about that a little bit so debbie delancey who's played by talia balsam who's martin balsam's daughter and john slattery's wife now who looks so different when she's young but she plays this absolutely obnoxious wannabe writer who follows everyone around at these awards trying to like get them to read her story and interrupts their conversations Ugh, and I cringe. It's so cringy right I mean she's just like rude at certain points and then Winslow is like I can't read your story my lawyers won't let me which is fair right yep like because if he wrote something similar then she could sue him for you know taking her ideas yep. Jessica of course is like oh I guess I mean she was a writing teacher so she was. Um, and actually, that becomes really important to the story because she reads Debbie's story and realizes it's about a sister whose brother is going off to Vietnam and how she feels. And Jessica connects the dots that Debbie is now connected to the novel about Vietnam that Hemsley stole from someone else. Right. And so what did you want to say about that? Do you want me to keep going? OK, yeah. I always try not to talk too long. 
because I think when one person talks for too long, it, it's hard to listen to. Okay, so I'll keep going. So um, ultimately what we learned then is, uh, you know, Debbie's walking around hawking this story about her brother Frank going off to Vietnam. And Frank, meanwhile, has written a novel about his experience in Vietnam that Hemsley has stolen. So Jessica's able to connect the dots that Debbie is Frank's sister. And she confronts Debbie with this whole bit with glasses that I don't think matters too much for our purposes, but... No, I found um, it confusing, frankly. (laughs) And Debbie is like, okay, yeah, um, Frank's my brother, and Hemsley stole his story, and here's what happened. I went to his hotel room, and he essentially tried to sexually assault me, and in self-defense, I stabbed him, and he died. And so this is one of those episodes where... um, the murder is really sympathetic and Jessica is like Mm -hmm. incredibly understanding. It wasn't actually even murder. It was an accident in self-defense. What strikes me though, is that given the tone of the rest of the episode, how campy and fun it is, we actually get this incredibly vivid flashback Mm -hmm. to Hemsley's attempted rape of Debbie. And it's, it's actually a little bit hard to watch Mm -hmm. given how lighthearted the rest of the episode is. Yes, and that's one of the things that stood out to me as I was watching it. I was thinking to myself, wow, this is really like a no-holds-barred like moment. What makes it so viscerally like distur- disturbing is that Kenneth Mars, who's playing, um, what's his name, is such a towering figure. Like, I don't know, I don't actually know his height, but compared to, the, you know, to his per- almost victim, like, he's quite physically intimidating. And so... You know, I think that obviously it's stagey in the way that a lot of these reenactments tend to be, but it's still, yeah, there's still a bristling intensity to it that is is very sharply at odds with what has come before and come after it in the episode. It raises a couple of questions for me. Um, like if Debbie uh, accidentally killed Hemsley and she doesn't want anyone to know, um, wh- why is she following up with Jessica about whether she read the story? Because wouldn't couldn't Jessica likely connect the dots then about the story, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think there's always, that that's always happens in these episodes. There's always like the thing that for me specifically, I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. But at least Jessica is so patient and sweet and understanding to her when Debbie tells her story. You know, we've noted many times before that, you know, Jessica is a person of tremendous empathy. Like she's someone who really does understand humans and the kinds of behaviors that they might exhibit in these moments of, crisis and so you know i think that that's what helps her to see in this young woman like that deep well of suffering and i think obviously i mean jessica's a woman of a certain age like i'm sure that she's had encounters not necessarily of quite that brutal but i'm sure that she has experienced like the sort of rampant sexism which we've seen before like i mean so it's not as if jessica i mean jessica as a female author Mm -hmm. has no doubt experienced some Mm -hmm. similar kinds of behavior from awful male authors I'm trying to remember if this is the first in the series, but it's definitely one of many episodes in the series that will have a murder related to something involving domestic violence or sexual violence. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's a theme throughout the series that for a 21st century viewer, I think it's it's a little bit horrifying how frequently that happens um, and that we're supposed to think, well, oh, yeah. Yeah, you had to kill him because the law wasn't there to intervene in any way. Um, But I think it actually, it's a really important story because Mm -hmm. it makes me kind of also proud of the series because that is something that continues till today to happen to women. And the series always gives us a sense that like, we understand why these women did what they did. They felt cornered. They felt like they did not have any moral or legal authority 
helping them. You know, it dovetails, I think, with certainly the, the convention that we've noted several times in this podcast of Marta Shiro's kind of investment in critiquing or, you know, subverting the patriarchal, the patriarchy, particularly these kind of like toxic patriarchal figures like, um, like what's his, I can't what's his name again? I can't keep, keep blanking. Who? Who are you talking about? The murder victim. Hemsley Post. Hem Post Post. So you know what strikes me about this is that it dovetails so neatly with Murdoch's longstanding convention of critiquing patriarchy, in particular like these toxic patriarchal figures like Post, who kind of epitomize sinister figures that have populated American life forever. And particularly like even within like literature, you know, I'm thinking of figures as I mentioned earlier, like Hemingway you know, notoriously patriarchal. So I really appreciate that about the show, that it's willing to take that kind of risk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we should talk about the actual investigation, Teach, because this is the first episode we see with Ron Mazek, who plays the homicide detective. Mm-hmm. So he's not playing Sheriff Mort Metzger yet. Mort Metzger won't come around for a few more episodes. But we do have Ron Mazek in the episode, mm-hmm. which is fun. It is. It's, uh, you know... It's one of those moments where, like, now having watched the show, you know, in reruns, like, we recognize it, even though obviously those at the time would not have been able to see it. So there's a nice little, like, you know, little gem right there for those of us who are fans. Yeah, Peter Fisher said he was just absolutely wonderful to work with. And so um, when they needed a sheriff, it was like kind of a Mm no-brainer. Like, he was a great guy to work with. We also have um, Pat Harrington, who was Schneider on One Day at a Time, Mm -hmm. playing the assistant DA. And I just, I love Pat Harrington. I I think he is just so fun to watch. He, even though his characters are really different, obviously an assistant DA is really different than Schneider. But um, there's just something, like, so wry and quirky and, like, just funny about the characters he plays. Mm Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. And I, I, I also appreciated the way that he brought that to this character. And his character's name is Melvin Comstock. Um, and again, that contributed to my queer reading of the episode because Comstock mm-hmm. laws were enacted originally mm-hmm. in 1873. And they they were essentially a series of laws that forbid sending obscenity through the post office, which included things like birth control, but also things like uh, anything deemed pornographic, which included any kind of homoerotic content. And so in um, LGBT history, we often talk about the Comstock laws and the ways that they prohibited people from exchanging uh, magazines mm-hmm. that could have been deemed, you know, gay and therefore obscene. Yeah. So there's, I, I think there's a lot of layered queerness in this episode. And, you know, going back to, you know, to Dad Brady from earlier, like it's such a risky move for him, given his own sort of closeted life to play this role that is so... Not if not explicitly, but puts its foot right on the line of explicit queerness. Yeah, because of course Robert Reed never actually came out. Right. Um, his homosexuality was, le- or bisexuality, maybe we should say. We don't actually know because he wasn't around to tell us. Right is the point. Um, that never that died only came out after his death, and after his um, he died of colon cancer. But his death certificate noted that he was HIV positive as well. So he didn't actually die of AIDS-related complications. But then it it sort of raised all of these questions about, like, well, who was this guy? So I think you make a really compelling point. Like, if he's if he's closeted in some way and sort of protecting his identity, this seems like a really risky move because mm-hmm. it would be very easy to say, oh, you played that, you must be that, right? Right, and it's even an ironic commentary on his earlier role of, you know, Father Brady. Like, you know, in that it's in, in like, a, a sort of, how do I want to put this? A subtle critique of the sort of pure father figure that he played mm-hmm. so 
iconically, but now ironically, sort of, you know, subverting that to some degree. Because, of course, everybody would know that that's, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that any viewer in 1985 would have been like, that's Mike Brady. Right. And then he's not wholesome. These are the characters he's playing. He's not wholesome. He's not fatherly. He doesn't have children. He's not a family man. He's like literally the opposite of all of that. Right. And it's one of those moments that I love about what I love so much about Marta Shrove is obviously, you know, I've gushed about Jessica Fletcher numerous times, but I really appreciate the way that Murder, She Wrote gives such vibrancy and such texture to even relatively minor characters. Because he really doesn't play that much of an important role in the in this episode. Like, he's not the victim. He's not the murderer. But we've already spent, like, ten minutes talking about this, yeah. <laughs> about this one yeah. character. But to me, that is one of the things, I think, that helps to explain Murder, She Wrote's longevity. I think a lot about, like, what makes shows, like, stand out from the crowd and achieve kind of cultural status and I think that's one of the things is that marks it as a success and an enduring one is that it is able to capture even the secondary characters in a really complicated way. Yeah, that's good TV writing, right? Right. It's what helps to also explain the Golden Girls. Not the only thing, obviously, but I mean, part of good writing is making sure that the side characters are just as interesting, if sometimes not even more interesting than your primary ones. Like that's really good writing. Well, and this is definitely an example of an episode where Jessica is the straight character. Um, I mean, she's always sort of the every woman, Mm -hmm. you know? But in this episode especially, she's surrounded by such flamboyant, wackadoo people (laughs) um, that she really stands out as, like, the voice of sanity, the the normal person, the, right, the straight man of the the comedy. Uh Yeah, and I mean, as you say, there are some real wackadoos in this this episode. Like, it is, as you know, it's just a whirly gig of of joy yeah (laughs) we should talk about um can we talk a little bit about how the episode presents new york because we are in new york again um Mm -hmm. and as in the murder of sherlock holmes the episode's first episode there's uh, a scene where jessica goes to a quote-unquote bad part of town and it's a it's supposed to feel a little bit dicey although this takes place in the daytime but she in trying to figure out who frank the original author of the book is she 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 goes to Brooklyn and Brooklyn is a working class. It's loading docks, you know, and people are saying things like, you lost lady, you know, and I love that because that is so not Brooklyn today. Right. Like, right. Like, where she is. is is probably like a five million dollar house right now. Uh-huh. Um, and there's like a close up on her shoes like she might be followed. You know, this is Brooklyn. It's a tough neighborhood. And she's like, oh, can I get a taxi? And the guy laughs at her like there's no taxis around here. It's just such a nice, I think, return to New York and reflection of um, all of the different, all the different sort of socioeconomic classes that make up New York at the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's also striking that, you know, Jessica is a person who is a character who can move between different spaces so almost effortlessly. And I think that's, you know, important because it allows her, obviously, to, and it, I think, adds to why she understands the human condition so well. I mean, that's something I think I was getting at a little earlier when I was talking, when she's talking with the, the murderess, if we will, you know, she's someone who really is a student of human nature. And part of that is because she can move through these socioeconomic spaces and often can, and can, um, can talk to people of different classes relatively easily, especially since she's a small town, you know, girl from Cabot Cove, but nevertheless, you know, rubs elbows with the literati and can usually give as good as she gets as far as, you know, sn- snobbery. Like, she's not someone who can, you know, she doesn't take it lying down, as it were. Mm-hmm. So I love that about her. I love everything about Jessica Fletcher. Like, you know, 
We all do. I am Hor. I am Horace. That's the thing. you are Horace. And did you notice in the final scene when she's confronting Debbie and they do the eyeglass switch? Um, we get this like close up on Jessica's face and she's wearing blue eyeliner. Isn't that mm. amazing? That is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's like a lot straight out of Mame. It seems like. I mean, Mame. I'm sure wears blue eyeliner. Well, teach. I think it's that time. So for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I'm Bridget Keith. And I am TJ West. Thanks for listening. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.